Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The IRS has taken several big steps recently on the personnel front. It's brought in people to help improve taxpayer service. And just the other day, Commissioner Danny Werfel said he'd reorganize management to emphasize service, compliance, technology, and operations. But there's a missing element, according to my next guest. Longtime leadership professor Bob Tobias joins me now. And Bob, let's review some of the things on that people front, first of all, that you have pointed out that are pretty positive. Yes, Tom, incredibly positive. Uh, Recently, IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel testified at a congressional hearing that the IRS massive hiring effort of 5,000 employees increased the IRS ability to answer taxpayer questions from 15%, imagine that, 15% in 2022 to 87% in 2023. So the IRS achieved the highest level of service to taxpayers in a decade. It, it, it was just an extraordinary effort with extraordinary results. However, you know, there's always a however. At the same time, the Government Accountability Office pointed out in a report that the IRS has a 16% turnover rate among its critical workforce processing tax returns. Now, the explanation that the IRS provided was that It put its strategic workforce plan on hold in 2019 because it didn't have enough funding to do the work. Therefore, it couldn't address the turnover question because it needed to determine what critical mission activities it had on board, where skill gaps existed, and what skill gaps will be needed in the future. But I think that's all misplaced. I believe turnover will not decline even if the IRS closes its information gap and provides skill gap training as they promised to do. Right. There's a basic difference there because you can have great plans and you know what your workforce needs will be. And then therefore you can direct your hiring and saying we need 5,000 people to do this, 2,000 people to do that. Let's train them to do all of that. But that doesn't necessarily create the conditions that people, once you have them hired and trained, want to stick around. That's right. That's right on the mark, Tom, because employees don't leave a new job. Employees leave a job because they don't feel connected to the workplace community. And community creation community creation is a function of effective leadership. There was no discussion of the need for leadership development at the congressional hearing. So leaders need to be trained on how to connect with those they lead to create a supportive workplace community, especially, especially with so many IRS employees who work several days a week at home. I mean, isn't that been one of the major ongoing critiques of the way the government does personnel over the decades is you have this senior executive service, but often people moving up to it really don't get the essential training they need on that personnel management front. They somehow get promoted, but they don't have the leadership training. I mean, this has come up before. That's correct. They don't get the leadership development training so that they can do effective leadership work. So relationship creation is a leadership skill that can be learned, but an agency needs to recognize it needs to be taught and it needs to be evaluated just like any other skill. 
So ensuring the acquisition of leadership development skills is critical, but it's not enough. It's only the critical first step because the IRS has to ensure that what is taught is actually used and used effectively in the workplace. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's retired professor at the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University, also a retired federal union president. And I want to get back to one point you mentioned, too, and that is leadership training is particularly required in the age when people are teleworking. And that has got to add a really difficult inducing element when people are not physically together, can't see one another, don't interact informally much, if at all, how you build cohesiveness and team belonging in a situation like that. Well, Tom, it is difficult, but it's difficult primarily because when I have people who are working at home, I have to change the way I relate to them. I can no longer count on automatically bumping into them. I cannot automatically count on them coming into my office. So I have to create a different environment where I am constantly talking to them, making appointments to talk to them, as opposed to hoping I will bump into them in the workplace. So I have to take on a responsibility that I didn't have to take on before. I have to change my behavior in this new world. And so it is challenging. It is different. But I assure you, it can be done. But even if, I, if I'm if i doing all of that, I have to have the time to do leadership work as part of my work day. In a historically short-staffed environment where, where you have high leader-to-lead ratios, leaders become doers of work with no time to do leadership work. So when the work piles up, leaders pitch in, they do their work. So the leader might just be limited to assigning work and doing work rather than spending time on leader work. Right. That's a good point. And I think, you know, just the industrial age we're in seems to, I don't know, denigrate those things. I mean, we also got rid of support staff. People make fun of, you know, secretaries or administrative assistants, which to me were incredibly valuable people with a great deal of skill that really enabled the rest of the organization to do what it had to do. But those have been wiped out in a lot of areas. There's many fewer of that type of person. By the same token, that idea of middle management, leadership has been, I don't know, maybe denigrated on the altar of productivity. We assume, and I think often erroneously, Tom, that everything can be done on my computer, you know. (laughs) It's turned us all into secretaries. Anybody who travels and tries to make airline reservations and who is old enough to remember when you had, when you called a company and they did it all and you just breathed a sigh of relief, know that access to a computer only increases the anxiety and amount of work you do. All right. So getting back to the leadership training question, then, what's your thought that the IRS ought to be doing here or any any large organization that's trying to effectuate reform and change improvement? Well, it seems to me, Tom, that this issue of developing leaders is not just an IRS problem. It's a government-wide problem. Research project after research project has shown that the greatest reason for federal employee leadership failure is promoted leaders continue to do what they've done in the past in their new leadership role. They don't do leadership work, all of which means that leaders at every level beyond the first level 
have to hold the leaders they lead responsible for leader work, for evaluating leader work, giving feedback about leader work. Leaders who are not effective as leaders should be put in non-leader roles where their expertise can be used rather than failing as a leader and poisoning an entire group who then chooses to leave the IRS or any other government agency because they experience a non-supportive community environment. Yeah, I heard a great expression from a retired military officer who nearly failed in his first attempt at being an officer or an executive in business after leaving the military. The processes were totally different. The expectations of leadership were totally different. And his expression was, what got you here won't get you there. That's exactly right. You know, as a person who wants to be a leader, I have to give up maybe the technical expertise that got me here in favor of learning what I need to get me there. And that has to be provided by government agencies. And once they provide that development, they have to give them time in the day to actually be a leader. And then they have to be evaluated about their work. All right. Well, maybe Danny Werfel is feeling on his shoulder a gentle hand of Bob Tobias, former federal union president, retired professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. Always great to get your thoughts. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.